Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with Omaid Shadifi, who leads the prolific public mural project called Art Lords. In their work, which includes over 2,000 murals spanning the entirety of Afghanistan, the Art Lords have transmuted their collective traumas absorbed over the course of their lives into beautiful, meaningful works of art meant to inform, inspire, and enlighten. Omaid's mission with Art Lords is to provide a counterbalance to the immense negativity which clouds the city's collective consciousness. The warlords, the drug lords, the slum lords. They do this by injecting art into the city and transforming the city itself. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we discuss what it's like to grow up in a place where war, poverty, and defiance are everyday realities. What the power of art in opening minds and promoting positive change is actually like. We discuss finding the courage and the creativity to stand up to those in power who refuse to listen. And lastly, we discuss how kindness, as a catalyst, is the best way to make a lasting impact. I truly enjoyed this insightful conversation with Omid, and I hope you do too. So without further ado, I bring you Omid Shadifi. Omid Shadifi, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you. Um, I would say surviving, trying to figure out day to day, but overall, I'm good. Well, it's great to be speaking with you, Omid. I think the work that you're doing with Art Lords is remarkable. It's quite literally transforming Afghanistan through and through. And I'd like to talk to you about all of the implications of what Art Lords is doing and the impact it's had and everything related to it, really. And the way I like to kind of start my conversations is to simply ask you, you know, how do you define who you are? I like the word artivist. So you, when you use art, especially as a tool for social change, for your activism, that is an artivist. And I think the work I do, uh, the way I feel, it defines uh, who I am, an artivist. Oh, that's really creative, an artivist. So have you always been into art? Help us understand your life's journey and how you kind of arrived in this place where you're now leading art lords. And tell us how your life journey has informed your work now with art lords throughout Afghanistan. Uh, when it comes to our life stories in Afghanistan, I usually joke with my friends. I tell them that I have lived 135 years uh, because uh, every day of our life is uh, so much happening into it. And sometimes when I compare the one day of my life with a person who is living in the West, maybe Europe or North America, I realize that uh, just one day could be one month. The troubles that we go, the challenges that we face, the traumas that we see, the dramas that we see, all of that combined. So it will be a very long story um, of my life. But I was born in Kabul. It was 86, uh, and it was the time that the Soviet Union was in Afghanistan. My dad used to be a police officer. He was shot uh, by the so-called Mujahideen uh, at that time. We never managed, or I think we were not able to uh, get out of Afghanistan. Uh, I think we did not have the resources uh, to leave Afghanistan. So my father decided uh, to stay in Kabul uh, during the Mujahideen government and then during the Taliban government. And when the 
2001 invasion of the Americans happened. So we were still in Kabul. And while growing up, and since my dad was shot, um, as a first son of the family, you're obliged to to earn money, to, to feed your family, to help your family. So I started working very, very early uh, as a kid. So I remember I was 11, 12, uh, when I had uh, a small, um, uh, we call it tabang, it's like a wooden tray uh, that you carry cigarettes and cookies and stuff. So I would sell cookies and cigarettes on the streets of Kabul. So that's how I started from 11 and 12. Um, and then I later on, when we had a bit of more resources, I would have a sh- small shop in Sharanao uh, doing the Mujahideen and Taliban. So all my life has been uh, sort of uh, working on the streets, being a shopkeeper, being a, a day laborer, working on the airports and construction sites. And then at the same time, I'm a student. So I would work in the shop for maybe six, seven hours, and then go to school for three, four hours. Uh, And I felt every single pain, suffering, joy that one can imagine in Kabul. So I went through poverty. Uh, I went through a lot of violence. I saw a lot of violence. And then I saw the joy of it as well, when you have an opportunity to work and and, then change your lifestyle, change your attitude towards life and all of that. So I think that is sort of a bit about my life. Yeah, I appreciate that backstory. Now, what would be really interesting to kind of understand, Omaid, is in your experience being born and raised in Kabul, help us understand what the feeling of the city was like in your upbringing. As somebody who was out and about, engaging people, selling cigarettes, selling trinkets, doing whatever you could to make money, going to school, help us understand what the feeling of Kabul was like in the 80s and then in the 90s with the civil war and then the Taliban takeover of the country. What did it feel like? Uh, the, the first feeling was fear. Fear of being sexually harassed or sexually abused. Because the moment every single day that I would come out of the house, my mom uh, and, and dad, so they, they would always say that not directly, but indirectly, they would give you a feeling because on the streets you would face any kind of people, uh, from the soldiers of the Mujahideen to the soldiers of the Taliban to mechanics, shop, any kind of person you would face. And then they were your clients. You would sell cigarettes and stuff like that. So the opportunity for a young boy being on those streets and being harassed was was a lot. Uh, so every single day I would be reminded of that. So when I was going out, I was super conscious to not even come too close to any person who is older than me or, or not go to the valleys and the streets when there's uh, not a lot of people. So I would always choose main streets, main roads. So that, the first feeling was fear. And the second feeling was the feeling of responsibility. I had five sisters smaller than me, although we were very, very poor. And that feeling of responsibility that we cannot sleep uh, the night uh, empty stomach, hungry, because we did sleep hungry many nights. To that feeling that if I can help, if I can pitch in, if I can bring something to the family, not much more, I would say. So my whole world would be fear. And, and the fear was not fear of getting killed, because I would literally see 
I would walk on the streets and I see rockets coming in. So I would like, so normal, like conflict was so inside us that I would not even fear that the rocket comes and hits like 50 meters from me, that I would still continue walking on that street. So not fear of being injured or, or somebody shooting me or anything like that, but the fear of being harassed uh, and, and, and the shame and the feeling of uh, not being able to bring something back home. So that would be like a big thing. Uh, that I, I failed my family. Hmm. That's really insightful, Omid. Thank you for sharing your perspective. Since you brought it up, I'd like to explore the idea of sexuality in the context of Afghanistan, in particular, the sense of fear that you felt as a young boy in Afghanistan in the 1990s. Have people since opened up about sexuality? Are people discussing this sense of perversion that's happening there? Um, what are your thoughts? I know this is a really sensitive topic, but perhaps you could shed some light on the realities on the ground as it pertains to this topic. I think people are still not discussing uh, the, this topic, especially when it comes to the boys and the traumas, uh, maybe not in the main cities like Kabul or Balkh or Herat. There was still, there was a lot of uh, such cases happening because I was fearful of it and I knew that it is present in my community. But this issue is much more worse in the provinces, in the communities, in, in districts and villages, and nobody's talking about it. I would say during the Taliban and the Mujahideen governments, women were more safe than the young boys because at least they were banned from getting out of the house and they were fully covered and nobody would dare to go near them in the public. Whatever was happening to the women of Afghanistan was happening inside the houses. So maybe the, their brothers or fathers or husbands were very abusive. But other than that, the, that fear of being sexually harassed was, was not there much. But for the young boys, because they were expected to go out, they were expected to go to the mosque, they were expected to go and work on the streets. So they were really uh, out there with no protection. I'm very glad for my father and my mother who were really, really strict. And they were really telling me every single day, they wanted me to be aware, just be aware. Uh, but there was a lot of young kids that they were not, and they would be abused, sexually harassed. And even now, even today, it's a very big issue. I, I'm sure from even from the government officials in the provinces to the police, to, to the army, to the Taliban uh, commanders, all of them are abusing these boys in their checkpoints, in their police headquarters, in their offices. Uh, they're making them dance. They're making them, and, and then later in the night, whatever they would do to them. So this, this was an issue back then. It is an issue right now. Unfortunately, nobody's talking about it. And the ones who started a conversation, a discourse about this issue, they were even threatened uh, to be killed. Uh, there was a case uh, from Logar province, uh, a civil society activist uh, raised an alarming issue that how many of these students uh, were, 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 were sexually assaulted, boys. And then the first thing happened, our intelligence agency arrested this guy and he was missing for a while. And then there was a, a, a outcry from the civil society and everybody and the government rejected it outright. The people rejected it outright. And now the guy is missing. We don't know if, if this guy is alive or not. Uh, so even right now, the moment you're not talking about an issue, it will be there and young kids, all of them, will continue to be uh, harassed and assaulted and this continues.
Yeah, this is such a difficult topic to discuss, but I think it's necessary. And so I think it's also important to share here at this point that this is a phenomenon that happens all across the world. I'm wondering if you could shed some light at this point as to why do you think this is happening and um, you know what makes, what makes it different in a place like Afghanistan? I'm really not sure. There might be some experts who have studied this, or maybe it's about the behaviors and attitudes of the people, or maybe the issues we have about openly discussing our sexual desires or sexual needs and, and all of that. There might be so many issues. And I think an anthropologist may be the right person to study this and then go through whatever is in these uh, communities and villages. The challenge is nobody's talking about it. So unless you're not talking about it, uh, nobody will be able to openly come and discuss this and study this and find a solution, maybe. Yeah, Omid, I really appreciate you being honest about this and bringing this topic up. Um, it does need to be discussed more, and it needs to be addressed and better understood in order to kind of be prevented. And so I'd, I'd like to kind of take this moment and fold your life experience during your upbringing and the life that you've kind of lived in Afghanistan and fold it into your work with Art Lords. Help us understand how those feelings and emotions and desires show up in the work that Art Lords does across Afghanistan. So I think my life experiences and also the life experiences of co-founders of Art Lords, uh, all of our life experiences contributed to establishing this, I would call it the movement, uh, a movement for social change. Because for me, Growing up and having that feeling of responsibility to do something, we call it uh, in Farsi, dain. It's sort of uh, more than a responsibility that you have to do something for your community, for your family, for your country. You have to give back. So that sense being in me from a very young age contributed to the establishment of the organization. At the same time, thinking about solutions, because everywhere we look, there's challenges. Every decision that people are making in Afghanistan, I would not say every decision, but most of the decisions that people are making, it is either coming out of trauma, out of anger, out of jealousy. It is not coming from a good place because people have seen so much. It's not coming from a very place of kindness and love and all of that. So we thought whatever we will do with the organization, it will come from a place of kindness, a place of love. So these two things contributed to first just going out there, looking at these big, ugly blast walls uh, that were there in Kabul. And this was a symbol of divide that you are the ordinary and we are the elite. And that feeling, we said, okay, I grew up in this city. It's a beautiful capital. I remember it vividly. And now they have put all these big blast walls and it looks like a present. So what we can do that is coming out of kindness and love and also it's a solution-oriented uh, activity. So we decided to paint them, use them as canvases to deliver messages, to, to help promote critical thinking, to help change attitudes and behaviors. So that is how Art Lodge started. Uh, a bucket of paint, a couple of brushes, we went out there started painting and the first mural we did was I see you a pair of eyes bright yellow colors and it say that I know you're stealing my money I know you're corrupt 
I know you're stealing from this country. Uh, so that is how the, the work is taught. So your first campaign with Art Lords was ICU to demonstrate to politicians that you understand that they're corrupt and you understand what they're doing. So what was that like and how did that, um, how did that land with people there? That was the first thing we started. I think those times in 2014, that was a very interesting year, I would say. There was the American drawdown was happening. Uh, everybody had that fear of 1989 uh, when the Soviets had left and the Mujahideen came and then destroyed everything, looted everything, looted the museum, uh, and then that culture of uh, stealing from everything. So that culture of Mujahideen was there and everybody had that picture in their minds. So when the Americans were drawing down in 2014, people were feeling like that, very hopeless. And all the young people were leaving, the, the businesses were leaving. So we thought, okay, what is the biggest thing that hurts us right now? What is the biggest shame we have? And the biggest shame for me was that always in every country they call us corrupt. The real Afghanistan is not corrupt. A person in a village is not corrupt. Uh, but all these people, maybe 2,000 people, 3,000, I don't know how many, in the government and in some civil society and businesses, they are the most corrupt. So let's do something to at least raise awareness. Because fighting corruption for us, at least for me, it started in our household. If in a year working in an organization, I would be able to buy an armored car for myself, which is $100,000, then my, f- my father will ask me, where did you find the money? My cousin will ask me, where did you find the money? But apparently, the other families are not asking this question. People are having houses in Istanbul, in Dubai. People are having three armored cars. People are having so many big buildings and apartments. And nobody's asking the question, where did you find the money to get these things? If it's legitimate business, of course, we're very happy for you. But we know most of these people, money is drug money, the war economy, the, the, the corruption, and all of that. So that is how we wanted to tackle the first major challenge that Afghanistan is facing. Right, right, right. So what you're saying, Omid, is that these big concrete blast walls, which were placed there to provide a security measure for ministry officials and rich citizens of the country, have created a separation between themselves and ordinary citizens. So what do you make to be the implications of that? That all these people, they have forgotten who they are, they forgot in the ordinary citizens of Afghanistan. Uh, they are secured behind these big blast walls. And when they are coming out, they have these armored cars. But the rest, the ordinary Afghan, is poor. It does not have any kind of services, no health care, no roads, no clean water, no clean air. And that is the moment that the legitimacy of the government is lost. The legitimacy of whatever we have built in, in Kabul is lost. Because the ordinary Afghan seems to not have any of these resources. His life is not impacted. Nobody is there for these ordinary people. That's like the, the kind of feelings I get out of it. I was there. I feel it when nobody was taking care of us and we had to like struggle for just a piece of bread. Uh, so I've been there. I know that feeling. So we have to help bridge this divide. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I understand. So... As you've kind of moved through the work that you're doing, quite literally have painted all throughout the city, help us understand how that's transformed Kabul 
And then also help us understand how that has impacted the people specifically. Like, what does the artwork that Art Lords does do for the ordinary citizen? I think I'll, I'll answer this in four parts. The first part, we just wanted the young Afghans to take responsibility, to tell them, look, man, we are the same kind of person as you are. I grew up the same as you grew up. Let's do something. Let's start from our families, from our villages, from our districts. Let's do something. We cannot just sit there and wait that this government or the international community or the Americans or somebody is doing something for us. That was the first feeling. The first. The second thing, we created a platform where you have all these conversations that you cannot have it in your school, in your mosque, in your community. So the moment we would go and start painting, we will invite everybody to come and paint. No matter if you're a street kid, a bigger, a police officer, even the president. So the moment everybody's painting, you have this, this opportunity to put a seed in their minds, help them understand the fight against corruption, help them understand the issues of women's rights, human rights, what this notion of democracy means. Third, all these murals were somehow promoting critical thinking because we are not taught critical thinking in school. We are always stopped from asking questions in our households, in our mosques, in our schools. So none of us have this scale of critical thinking. Uh, we're trying to encourage the citizens to ask questions, to think. And at the same time, beautification of the city. We have done over 2,000 murals in 22 provinces of Afghanistan, from the borders of Afghanistan and Iran all the way to the borders of Afghanistan and Pakistan. We have been everywhere. We have not done only murals, but street theater. We have done animation. We have done sculptures. We have done... So we just want it in a place of chaos and crisis. We wanted to bring something beautiful. We want them to heal. We wanted people to have an opportunity to break that cycle of violence. Because I think we are very angry. We have been in a war for the last 45 years. And the cycle of violence is rolling and rolling and rolling. And we are creating more ang angry people. So I think the moment somebody would come, take a brush and start painting, either on a canvas or a blast wall, I think that moment you're breaking that, that the chain of violence. That moment, this guy is not thinking about the poverty he's facing. He's not thinking about the harassment he's facing or she's facing, about the corruption, about the, the, the life threats and then the security and the Taliban and Daesh. That moment, this guy is for himself, just taking a break from all the misery. So I think... Art Lords is just not a mural organization, but a movement that tried to bring empathy, love, kindness, creativity, critical thinking, all of that somehow to mainstream it, to make sure that everybody notices this and uses art. Because art was forgotten. Nobody was talking about art. When you're hungry and when, when poverty is the elephant in the room and security is like this, so art was a far thing to think about. So I think now art is becoming sort of mainstream. People want to buy a painting. They want to go to a gallery. They want to come and paint with us. So that sort of things, I think that is what art loss is about. Yeah, I think that's absolutely beautiful, Amid. And what I really love about what you just shared with us is that the work that Art Lords does, does in fact beautify the cities and the country through and through. But I think what's even more important is that it provides a space for people to come together and talk about all the things that they've seen, that they've experienced, allows people to express what 
is not only on their minds, but what's in their hearts, all the things that they've seen, and how they can make sense of it. And it's done in a place where there's no real judgment because everybody else has felt that way too. And so that in itself is healing. And you know what I think it really does is it allows people to make them feel like they're not alone, right? True, true. And that sense of engagement, you know, a lot of us in Afghanistan and uh, the young people uh, younger than me, especially the Generation Z or the millennials, they feel that they are not involved in anything. They don't feel that ownership of the country. They don't feel the ownership of the problem. And then they cannot find a solution for it. So if you are trying to engage the young people in that conversation and just give them something, something to be hopeful for, something to, to, to be part of. I think that is also, uh, as you said, and creating that safe space where they can come and be themselves, heal. The, the challenge is so big. And whatever you do, I think, if it's coming out of kindness, it really can make a huge impact. Uh, so if I was doing this work in the States or in, in the Europe, it would have been another street muralist, simple as that. But if you're doing it in Afghanistan and facing all these threats and challenges and all of that, and then you will see that how big change it can bring and how many people you can touch and how many people can smile because of what you do uh, or change their attitudes and behavior. So that's really inspiring. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. You know, what's really wonderful about what Art Lords does is that in our culture, it's not manly to talk about our feelings. It's not acceptable. It's not what people do. Personally, what I'm trying to do with this podcast is have people come together and talk about the things that they've experienced. In particular, talk about the meaning that they give to their lived experience. And one has to do that by opening up. And so one of my personal philosophies is that I believe that freedom exists on the other side of vulnerability. And so you have to go through vulnerability to be the person you've always been. What I'd like to do now is kind of talk to you about how the work that you've done through Art Lords has transformed you specifically. How have you changed through this work that you've, you've been doing? I, I remember when I had this small shop in Insharana, when I had updated uh, my selling cigarettes on the streets to having a permanent shop. So I would have an opportunity to buy books. Uh, and then at those times, you would buy books in kilos. So I would go and, and buy like seven kilos of uh, Farsi books, Persian books. And you would find any kind of book uh, on these streets because people would bring everything they had on the streets and uh, because they were leaving to Pakistan or Iran or other places. So they would, ha they would sell anything they had. And when their, ha their houses were looted by the Mujahideen uh, or the Taliban, they would take everything but the books. So the only thing, if, if your house was looted, uh, the only thing that would remain there were the books. And so you had an opportunity to come and, and, and sell those books. So I would buy these books and the topics were different from the stars to the galaxy. And then I would read about all these places, New York, Washington, London, Paris, all of these. And I would always think, would it be possible that I visit all these places someday? And then what authors did to me was I visited all these places in a short span of time, I would say. It transformed me to be more compassionate, to be more kind, trying to help, trying to be there for, for other people. And it inspires me every day. It's something every single day when I wake up, I'm happy 
to go to my space with a big smile. I have a ritual when, whenever I get out of the house. So my, my dad used to, every time I would come out of the house, my dad would say, Yasini Sharif Abukhan, this is a, a part of the Quran that you would recite. And then uh, you would just say that God protect me. So that's my ritual. I, I do that. And then uh, I, I also feel grateful, uh, grateful for the life I have, grateful that I'm alive one more day. Maybe I'm not alive next day because that is the feeling of insecurity. The moment I come out, I'm not sure I'm coming back alive. But that moment of morning, I'm happy, I'm smiling and I say, I go to the office. I'm grateful uh, for the work I do. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. I think the power of gratitude and the belief and the practice of gratitude actually is a transformative thing. And you can cultivate that wherever you are, whether it's in Afghanistan, the United States, and everywhere in between. That's a practice that everybody can find a sense of solace in whenever it's embraced and practiced. So really quickly, Omid, what do you think Art Lords and the murals that you essentially paint and the work that you do captures that isn't shared in mainstream media? What is the thing that you kind of tell that isn't being told around the world about Afghanistan? Good news. If you see the headlines of all the major news outlets in Afghanistan and outside Afghanistan, uh, the news coming out of Afghanistan is usually about corruption, about explosions, about suicide attacks, about the men beating their wives, and everything is about misery, poverty. So you rarely see any good news coming out of Afghanistan. Those are our realities. It is the truth about Afghanistan. What we wanted to do was showing a positive side of Afghanistan as well. Because I know that in Kabul, there are 300 individual studios of art. There are galleries, there, there, there are cafes, there is music, people dance, people sing, people create art, people do sculptures. Uh, people come to my gallery every single day. So that is the part that we wanted to show. We want it to be the positive lords of Afghanistan. There are so many negative lords, corrupt lords, drug lords, war lords, you name it. And now you have the positive lords, the constructive lords, the art lords. So that was missing and we tried to bring that. And when we were traveling outside Afghanistan, imagine having uh, exhibitions. It's very normal for other citizens of the world to have exhibitions in other parts of the world. A French artist having exhibitions in New York, but for an Afghan artist, and then coming out of this, this chaos and crisis, and then having an exhibition in Washington, although the art is not at that level, but it tells a story. I'm not so much proud of the art that we do, but proud of the stories that we bring out. That, and then talking about the positive side of my country, the changes that has happened. 20 years, so much has changed. If you now talk with the Generation Z of Afghanistan, they have grown up with iPhones, with internet, with some electricity. They have a very different uh, perspective about life, about uh, the world. Uh, so I think that is the message that we are bringing out. And that is what others have failed uh, to show about the country. It's true. We are the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are, and we're also the stories that we tell our others about who we are. And it's important that you have control over that narrative, or at least you have a voice in that narrative. So I personally want to thank you for that, because I think that's crucial for better understanding the whole picture as it pertains to a place like Afghanistan. Even though there is crisis and conflict, people still have birthday parties, and people still get married, and people still have moments of joy. That's what it means to be human. 
we're able to find the goodness even when it's most difficult. We're able to find the light in the darkness. So Omid, as we kind of wrap up here, I'd like to ask you one final question. What's your message for the world? I think, especially in 2020, uh, the world went through a lot of trauma, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the Trump era. So I think uh, we need to be kind, especially for people who are living in, in, in these uh, harsh environments like Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, or the refugees who are coming on the borders of the United States. We just have to show some compassion, some kindness. We are not just numbers, uh, numbers that die every day in Afghanistan. Uh, we are not just numbers who are coming to the borders of the United States as refugees or the people, numbers who are in Lisbon in, in, in Greece. We have to humanize these numbers. All of them are humans. They have stories. And we just have to show some kindness and compassion towards each other. I think that is my message to the world. From a place which is very unkind, uh, we have to practice compassion and kindness. Omid Sharifi, thank you for bringing the light in the darkness. I appreciate you. Thank you, my friend. Enjoy your day. Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. Okay, see you next time.